Daniel chapter 7 is where we find ourselves. We started last week uh, through this chapter in studying the vision that Daniel himself received, and the vision of the four beasts. Uh, We made our way down through verse uh, 14 last week, um, which was the bulk of uh, Daniel relating to the reader uh, what his dream was, uh, what he saw in this vision of the four beasts. Now, when we pick up this morning in verse 15, uh, what we find here is in the interpretation of the dream uh, that the angel gave to Daniel as he was standing there watching all of these events unfold. Daniel's heart uh, was perplexed. It was distressed, it tells us there in verse 15, and he desired to know what these things meant. It's interesting, as we discussed last week, that this Daniel, who had interpreted dreams for so many others, uh, here found himself at a place now where he was given a dream that for some reason caused him much great difficulty uh, in the inner man. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning of why it was so difficult for Daniel to wrap his mind around this and really why it grieved his spirit so deeply. But again, this text as it points to us, and as we have said each and every week, and we'll continue to say all the way to the end, what we continue to find in each chapter of the book of Daniel is this beautiful picture and demonstration of the sovereignty of God in all things. If you found your way there to Daniel chapter 7, stand with me. We're going to start reading in verse 15, and again, just read down to the end of the chapter. And this is the word of the Lord. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made it known to me the interpretation of these things, these great beasts, which are four number or four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints are the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings." And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in time and law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Highest One. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. At this point... The revelation ended, and as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. You can be seated this morning. You will uh, find, as we study through this morning, a little bit of repetition uh, from last week's sermon, obviously because we are uh, just interpreting uh, by the angel's words here the dream that Daniel had, and understanding the 
the content of that dream, even though we've already elaborated on that a little bit. Uh, we will continue to elaborate on that a little bit more this week, and I think will help cement in our minds and our hearts um, again, the descriptions that Daniel uh, is giving to us and understanding exactly uh, what each of these figures, the beasts, the horns, and all of those things signify uh, and how that is uh, to be applied for us today. Notice there in verse 15, though, the first thing is that Daniel says he was distressed and the visions in his mind kept alarming him. Uh, Daniel now is, is, is struggling to reconcile what's going on here. And we're going to find out in a later verse that part of that struggle came because even though he didn't fully understand the dream, he didn't fully understand who the beasts were, and especially that great and terrible fourth beast, the one thing that Daniel did recognize and see throughout the midst of this dream was that there was tribulation and trial that was coming to God's people. Uh, there was difficulty that he saw God's people suffering under, and so that brought him great distress. And brothers and sisters, it should be the same for us as well. Oftentimes we are, have a tendency to be isolated in our Christian life. Uh, we have a tendency to worry about ourselves and maybe even just to worry about the context of our own church body um, and not deeply have these emotions when we see other Christians suffering in different places. Now, now let me be clear when I say that. I'm not saying that we don't look uh, when we hear a report from missionaries around the world who are experiencing persecution. It's not that we don't say, oh, well, how terrible that is. But are we deeply grieved by it? Are we, are we moved to the point that it would be like it was happening to our own family members? And oftentimes, I think we're not as moved as we should be. But here Daniel is seeing Christians suffering, and he has no idea who they are. Like, they're not people that he knows by name. They're not people that he even has recollection of. He just sees it happening, but he knows that they are the people of God. He knows they are children of God, and so his heart is deeply overwhelmed by the fact that he is seeing God's people suffer. And so this, this creates this hunger in him. He wants to understand the details of this dream so that he can bring hope to this situation. Daniel is not a man who believes or knows uh, or, or thinks that um, suffering does not come to God's people because he's a man who has experienced it. He's experienced suffering on behalf of God's purpose and plan. But he also understands that for people to make it through those moments, they need to have that encouragement from God. They need to know what God's plan and purpose is as much as God allows for them to walk through that situation. Now, remember, we, we discussed this last week. We have the benefit of looking back to see the fulfillment of these events. Uh, Daniel did not have that. He was looking into the future, seeing things that he really was having a hard time wrapping his mind around. It's easy for us to look back at these four kingdoms uh, and see it again as it falls throughout the course of history, and it just makes perfect sense to us. But again, for Daniel, this was something outside of any realm that he could imagine. Uh, to imagine the greatness of, of some of these other kingdoms outside of Babylon, one of the greatest kingdoms that had existed at that point in time in, in recorded history, how could it be that there would be any greater or more powerful or more terrible than what Babylon had done? So Daniel did the only thing that he could do. Verse 16 tells us that he looked at those who were standing by, and he began asking him the interpretation of all this. Now, commentators are disagreed on, on exactly who is speaking to him here. Most believe that it's probably an angel. Um, so he, he's speaking to this angel who's standing by watching all these events in this vision, and he just asked him the question, what's happening here? What's going on? I, I need to know what is happening. 
it's good for us to seek an explanation for the things that we don't understand. It would have been very easy for Daniel, perhaps in pride or arrogance, to think, well, I'll just figure this out for myself, right? I've interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. I've interpreted dreams for some of the, the greatest people in the kingdom. I'll just figure it out myself. I'll just do it all on my own. But Daniel is one who gives us a demonstration here. And I, I just wanted to point this out because I think it's important, you know, is that when he didn't understand what God meant, he asked. He sought it out. He said, I need to know. I need to understand. And we need to learn a lesson from this because oftentimes we find ourselves in a situation where somebody may ask us a question about a spiritual matter, ask us a question about theology or about God himself. And too often we are tempted to just try to make up something on the spot because we don't want to admit that we don't know. It's okay to admit that we don't know sometimes. It's okay to admit that we don't have all the answers. And I say that to a room full of Reformed Baptists this morning because oftentimes we can have the worst reputation of not wanting to admit that we don't know something. So Daniel here admits, I don't know. I don't know what this means. I'm totally confused by this. So he asks one of God's servants, he asks one of the angels, can you explain to me all of these things? And thankfully, this angel gives him the explanation. And so now we're going to, again, we're going to see some repetition here because he's really just going back through Daniel's dream and he's expounding upon this so that Daniel now here has this very clear clarity on what these things mean. Verse 17, he says, The one who was standing by told him these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Now you remember these four kingdoms are those kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And these are the same kingdoms uh, that we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great statue. Nebuchadnezzar had that great vision, the statue of gold, the statue of bronze, and silver, and of iron, and, and all those kingdoms represented, and, and increasing in their strength and power as they went down, with that last kingdom of Rome being the one who was the, the most powerful, the one who had this crushing uh, strength and brute force. And we are seeing, again, these kingdoms from a different perspective here. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was all about, from man's point of view, that these kingdoms were great and powerful and robust and demonstrated here in the statue of this great figure. But now here in Daniel's dream, we see these four kingdoms represented as brute beasts, uh, vicious and, and carnal and cruel. But even in their viciousness and their carnality and their cruelness, they are still controlled by their ultimate master, which is God. In man's perspective of great kingdoms, it's all about the individualism of the kingdom. It's all about the powers that be, the ones who have risen up, who have all control and authority, and all the power and all the, the, the acclaim and the celebration goes to those kings. But in God's perspective of the nations, he knows he is the one who's in control. And God sees these kingdoms not as these great leaders, not as Nebuchadnezzar, not as any of these other great kings, Alexander or any of the others. God sees them as animals because that's all they are. They're these brute beasts, but he has them fully and totally under his power and under his control. They cannot move without God allowing them to move. They cannot go, they cannot come without God permitting it to happen. It is God who sets the kingdoms up, and it is God who tears the kingdoms down. So these are the four kingdoms. 
So we see this from a historical perspective. And again, remember, Daniel's looking forward. He, he has no concept uh, of, the, of the greatness of the Persian Empire, of the, Greece, of the Grecian Empire, or of the Roman Empire. All he is doing is seeing this demonstrated by the pictures of these beasts and by their increasing viciousness and strength and, and even ugliness when it comes to that fourth kingdom of Rome. And the one continues and he says, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So really what the, the one who's speaking to Daniel is doing here is giving a very quick synopsis of Daniel's entire dream in two verses. If you wanted to know the theme of Daniel's entire dream in two verses, here it is. These great beasts, which are four in number, or four kings will arise from the earth. But the saints of the kingdom, will, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess it forevermore. So here's this summary of it all. Here are these great beasts, these great kingdoms that will arise from the earth. And no matter what happens, no matter what goes on, in the end, the saints of the highest one are going to be one who will possess and receive the kingdom for now and for the ages to come. Despite the power and the fury of these beasts, the saints will prevail. The saints in the end will be victorious and will receive the kingdom. Again, because remember, we have to think about this over and over and over again in studying the book of Daniel and understanding these things as we look at the course of human history. Now, there are often times when we see prophetic things that have been spoken of in the scriptures and they have been fulfilled. We see that in the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of the, in, uh, in the fulfillment of the Messiah prophecies. Uh, but we also see it here in Daniel's talking about these things that were fulfilled in the rise of Persia and Greece and Rome. But there are also applications that we see to us later in human history. That any time we see great kingdoms on the earth, that it is not by their own power that they become so. We need to remember this, that God is the one who sets kings up and tears them down. I've said it ad nauseum, I know, in the course of this sermon series, but it's something I think that Christians, we really need to ingrain into our mind, into our cultural worldview, is that we have the ruler that God wants us to have. It may not be the ruler that we want, but it's the ruler that God wants us to have, and it's the ruler that we deserve. And when it changes from one way towards the other, it's only because God has chosen to allow that to change. So now it doesn't change what we're supposed to do. We should pray for our rulers. We should pray for our leaders. We should pray for godly leaders. We should pray that God would, would give us godly rulers and godly leaders. But when we are suffering under the midst of ungodly leadership, of ungodly rule, we need to understand that that has happened for a purpose. And usually, most often, the purpose is, is that God is trying to teach us a lesson. He's trying to direct us back to who he is. And oftentimes what we as Christians in the modern world do is we just lament the fact that we're under ungodly leadership, but we don't do anything about it. We don't pray, we don't work, we don't fight for the kingdom of God here on this earth. Oftentimes as Christians, we have been tempted to just give up. Right? We think, oh, well, that's just the way the world is. So we're just going to huddle over here in our little corner and wait for Jesus to come back. That's not what God desires for us to do at all. He desires for us to continue pushing forward with the kingdom, pushing forward for the glory of God. Dominion, it says here has been given to the Holy One, the Highest One, and He has given it to His saints. We see this most clearly 
And we're going to reference this verse several times during our sermon together this morning in Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 28. What did Jesus say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. And then Jesus tells his disciples to go and therefore make disciples of all nations. He says, because I've been given the authority, now I, because I have all the power and authority in heaven and on the earth, I command you to go out and do that which I have called you to do, and that's to take the gospel to the nations, to take the kingdom of God to the furthest places on the face of the earth. But Daniel's greatest concern here in this passage was about this fourth beast. Verse 19 says he desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was exceedingly different from all the others. Dreadful with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the rest. It was so different as we, as we looked last week that Daniel couldn't even come up with an earthly animal to use to describe it. It was so, in his mind, grotesque looking, so vicious looking that there was no earthly animal that he could use as a descriptor for what this beast was like. And what he tells us here is that its teeth were so strong and powerful, its claws of bronze. And he just describes over and over again the destructive power of this beast. Now, we know this fourth beast represents Rome, the Roman Empire. And we know from history that the Roman Empire was cruel and devastating to many groups of people, but most specifically to the Church of Christ. Its power was attempted or it did attempt to crush out the kingdom of God, to crush out in its fullness of its power to destroy Christ's church. Now, we know that it could not do it. It had no ability to do that. The, the, the kingdoms of this world cannot prevail against the kingdom of God. But Rome did its very best. It did its very best to push back the church and to push back Christians and to do everything it could to destroy anything that it saw related to the God of Christianity. That included even uh, the Jewish religion as well, because they saw the connections there. Daniel also, not just about the nature of this beast, but he wanted to know what these ten horns represented and what the little horn represented. What does it mean that ten horns were on the head of this fourth beast and that there was a third horn that came up, I mean a little horn that came up and destroyed three of the other horns? I remember last week that I pointed to the fact that this third horn, I believe, uh, from my study, represents a Nero. Nero uh, the Caesar there in Rome was born in A.D. 37, the same year that Tiberius died. And we talk about the fact that Nero was not in line or secession to be uh, a ruler there in the Roman Empire. And in fact, in order for Nero to rule, three of the other Caesars had to die in order for him to be there. Tiberius was smothered. Caliglia was um, was murdered by his own guardsmen. And then Claudius was poisoned, most people believe, by his wife, Agrippa, so that her son, which was Claudius's stepson, could then step in and become the ruler of the Roman Empire. So to me, I think it makes great sense here to see you have these ten horns, which represents all of the ten Caesars, there from Julius all the way to the, uh, for ten successions there of Caesars. And for order for Nero, this small one who kind of comes up out of nowhere because he's not in the line of succession, in order for him to come, three of those horns, three of those represented here, have to fall away. They have to be moved out of the way in order for him to take his position. It makes even more sense when it talks about the attitude and the actions of that little horn. Because he says, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. This is where Daniel's concern really comes uh, visible. 
because he sees that this one horn, this little horn, was waging war, was trying to push down and to overwhelm the saints. Some translations talk about that he's wearing them down. And that's really what it means, because ultimately that's what Satan does when he fights against the kingdom of God. He cannot defeat God's kingdom. He cannot overpower God's people. He cannot defeat those who are child or who are children of the king. The only thing that he can attempt to do is to wear them down, is to fight and to fight and to fight, and to ultimately they are just tired and more tired and more tired. And this is ultimately what Nero was attempting to do against the kingdom of God in Rome. He began persecuting the saints in A.D. 64 when he took his rule, and he died of his suicide some three and a half years later. And you're going to understand the importance of that. We see that three and a half presented back to us in later verses. But Nero was on the throne for three and a half years from his time of his uh, being put on the throne until the time of his, um, of his suicide. So three and a half years that he waged war against the saints. But notice the good news that comes for this. Verse 22 tells us, it says, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. When the Ancient of Days passed his judgment in favor of the saints, we see this in the ascension of Christ. When Christ had died and he had resurrected, he ascended back into heaven. And in his ascension, he takes that seat of authority and power that was given to him by the Father over heaven and earth. Again, Matthew chapter 28, what did Jesus say? All authority given to me in heaven and on the earth. Now, the one to whom Daniel is speaking continues in this. He doesn't just stop there, but now he goes back and he elaborates a little bit more about this fourth beast. This fourth beast, again, Rome, the fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. This Roman Empire was different because of its power, because of its persecution, and specifically because of its role and its desire to crush the kingdoms of God, to crush the church and to crush the Jewish religion. We know that it did everything that it could, especially under Nero, to push back the teachings of Christianity, to crucify, to burn alive, to to, uh, feed to the lions, anything that it could do to crush the, uh, the Christian faith. And ultimately... This ended with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Romans said, because the Romans saw the connection, and they didn't understand the differentiation between Christianity and Judaism, right? They saw the two of them connected because of the the faith of those who had moved from Judaism into Christianity. So they saw these two things as united together, and ultimately their desire was to push back this movement. And so by destroying Jerusalem, by destroying the temple in AD 70, it was kind of their stamp down to say, we're going to put an end to all of this. This was the vicious power and destruction that Daniel is seeing. He's watching this persecution of the saints. He's watching this this, this, uh, vile empire come against the kingdom of God. And he's seeing this total destruction of the city of Jerusalem of this representation uh, of God, what had been uh, God's kingdom there, of what, where Jerusalem was, the city of God, where God's presence had dwelled there in the temple until Christ's resurrection, uh, when that was removed from the city. And now he says again in verse 24, As for the ten horns, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. Again, we have this reference back. Now, Again, the line of the Roman empires. I'm going to read this list off to you. And this line of Roman em- of emperors um, consists of most of New Testament history. 
And so you'll recognize some of these names. Others are not as well known, but you'll recognize some of them. You had Julius Caesar, and then Augustus Caesar, Tiberius, Claudius, Caligula, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespian. There's those 10 kings out of this of this last fourth beast, the 10 horns represented by these 10 kings. Again, the little horn being Nero, who three kings, three emperors were assassinated in order for him to make his way to the throne. Verse 25 again describes the attitude of what Nero was doing against the kingdom. Look at verse 25. He says, he will speak out against the most high. He will wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will tend to make alterations in time and law, and they will be given to his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So Nero was basically placing himself in the position of God. He was blaspheming against the name of the Most High because of his hatred to Christianity, his hatred of Christ, and his hatred of any of those who would not bow down their name to Caesar. Uh, they would not say Caesar is Lord. They refused to say that, even though it was just, it's just a word, right? We see this oftentimes presented in our culture. People tell us, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. This is what was happening to the early church. Many of them were saying, oh, well, it's not a big deal. You don't have to mean it when you say Caesar is Lord. You can say it and not really mean it in your heart. But no, the church said, we, we cannot do that. There is only one Lord. There's only one king, and it is not Caesar. And we refuse even to allow those words to come out of our mouth. We will not verbally declare, whether we mean it or not, that Caesar is Lord because he is not. And so Caesar hated the church. He hated the saints. He hated God. And so he intended, again, there to wear down the saints. He hoped by this persecution that he would wear them down to crush the spirits of the saints through persecution. That as they watched and they saw 10, 15, 100 more saints being killed and persecuted, that over time, the rest of them would eventually relent and say, you know what? We give up. You know what? We don't want to have to fight this any longer. We don't want to have to be pushed back anymore. We will relent. We will say that Caesar is Lord. We will, uh, we will submit ourselves to the rule and authority of, of Caesar, and we will, we will turn away from all these things. But what Caesar didn't understand, what Nero didn't understand, is that the power of God is much stronger than the persecution of the world. The power of God is much stronger than the persecution of the enemy. The saints did not give up. They did not wear down. And it says that God would be, uh, they would be given into his hand. They would be given into his hand for a time, a times and half a time. So what this means, if you look at this out and you evaluate this out in years, it's three and a half years. So a time is a year, times is two years, and half a time is obviously half a year. So three and a half years, that it says that this little horn will be able to wear down the saints of the Most High. Now, again, what does this mean? Nero's persecution lasted, what? Three and a half years. So here we see this picture of at three and a half years, God brought an end to this persecution by bringing Nero's life to an end and stopping this war against the saints. Now, Calvin, among others, uh, as I studied through this uh, passage, uh, makes a present application of current persecution. Calvin saw this as, again, the demonstration of what was happening to the church uh, during the Roman Empire, the persecution that they were experiencing. But he also says that there's a present application to his time when the church was being persecuted. Because we see that the Antichrist, those who hate God, those type of people or individuals or powers appear in every generation. 
In every single generation on the earth, there are those who have the, what we may say, the spirit of Antichrist, the ones who hate Christ and so do everything they can to push back the kingdom of God. Calvin saw it in his day, so he said there is a time where we see this application that there will be times when the Antichrist spirit, those who are Antichrist, tend to wear down the church. But the good news is, is that they do not have the ultimate victory. The good news is, is that God will only allow it for a period and a time. And we can see even this in our own generation. But again, the ultimate purpose was not to talk about our generation or even Calvin's generation, but it was to point the Jews towards the arrival of the Messiah. Listen to what Calvin had to say. He says, thus this vision was presented to the prophet that all the children of God might understand what severe trials awaited them before the advent of Christ. He's seeing this as this descriptor of what was going to happen in these days and times leading up to Christ's birth, but then also after Christ had ascended into heaven when the Roman Empire would rise up against the church. Verse 26 is an encouragement to us. It says, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion, speaking of the dominion of the, of the little horn, will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. What does ultimately that mean? Because Nero was not the ultimate figurehead. He was the one who represented the one who hated God. He was the one who represented Satan himself. So when we see this power and dominion being taken away and annihilated and destroyed, he's not specifically talking about just Nero, but he's talking about the one who would persecute and come against the church. And that is Satan himself. Notice there in verse 27. It says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms of the whole world under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. This is a beautiful picture here. It's, it's such an encouragement to the heart of Daniel. It's such an encouragement to the heart of God's people. And I hope this morning that it is such an encouragement to you to understand that in the establishment of Christ's kingdom, the dominion and power and authority has been given unto Christ and that he rules and reigns with that power and authority even now. Now, the ultimate, the ultimate of all of that we know will happen when Christ returns and, and he establishes the greatness of the kingdom, but, but it does not mean that Christ is not ruling and operating now. He rules and reigns in this very moment. Otherwise, we would have no power, no ability, no hope, no strength to do anything that he's called us to do. If Christ were not ruling and reigning in this moment, we might as well just give up and go home. But it's because he rules, because he reigns, that we have this hope and this promise. Now remember, Daniel's vision here was given to help the Jewish people have this correct understanding of the time when Christ would come, when the Messiah would arrive, and God's kingdom would come on the earth. We would see Christ coming in his power and in his authority. Now, the Jewish people had been waiting on a Messiah, but they didn't know when he was coming. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't know how it would happen. Now, we understand that by the time Jesus uh, came to earth, that the Jewish people had created their own idea of what this was going to look like. They saw this mighty king who would just march into Jerusalem on the back of a white horse, slay all of the Romans and establish himself on the throne. That's why it was so difficult for most of them to conceptualize this king who came first as a meek and mild servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was not the typical attitude or behavior of a mighty warrior king, but Jesus is unlike any other mighty warrior king. 
And so when he came and he submitted himself to God and he went to the cross and he died and he was resurrected from the dead, then in that ascension, the scripture tells us that he ascended into heaven and he took his place at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus tells his disciples that all power, all authority had been given to him. Christ's kingdom was established, not just in heaven, but Jesus says in heaven and on the earth. Now remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. He says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, oftentimes you'll hear people say that Christ's kingdom is, is in heaven, but it's not yet on the earth. It will not be on the earth. We'll not see that kingdom until that day when Jesus comes back for the second time. But, but if Jesus has not established his kingdom and he's not yet come back for the second time, then where are these people who Jesus said would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Now, just as a queer, quirky thing this morning, there are a group of people who believe that there are uh, uh, some people who still are alive on the face of the earth who have been alive since Jesus' day, waiting for the coming of Christ, because Jesus said there would be some who would not taste death until they see him coming in the kingdom. Now, what sounds more logical, right? that God would have to keep a certain number of people alive for some 2,000, 2,500 years, hidden away somewhere on the earth so that Jesus' words would be true, or that Jesus really meant what he said when he said, there are some of you who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It seems logical to me that Jesus was just speaking factually. And that the coming of his kingdom was established there when Jesus ascended into heaven. He took his seat at the right hand of God the Father. He took all power, all authority, all control over heaven and on the earth. And it was ultimately demonstrated, again, even in a more visible way in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, when Jesus Christ did come, not in a physical way, but he came in judgment on the city of Jerusalem destroying every empire that was there, destroying this Jewish religious system and saying, I told you, we're done with this. This is over. We're, we're, we're no longer making sacrifices. You can no longer come to me in this way. I have sent you the promised one. I have sent the Messiah, and I'm sending judgment on this city to demonstrate this very fact, that he is the one who you must come and with whom you must serve. This is such an encouragement to me. I can honestly say that the more that I have studied, it's been over the past couple of years, uh, as we have gone through uh, Matthew, and we studied through Matthew 24, and as I was preparing to preach through Daniel, and as I again prepare to preach um, at some point in the future through the book of Revelation, that there is this incredible hope that comes when we read these books through a couple of different lenses. One is through the lens of understanding that Christ is ruling and reigning, that his kingdom is here on the earth doing what he said he's going to do. But the second is reading these texts and reading these things and not trying to write into them something that is not in the text, but just reading them in their context and asking the question, when Daniel would have seen this vision, what would he have understood this to mean? When Jesus would have been talking to his disciples there in Matthew 24, what would they have understood him to mean? Not what do we think they would have thought or what do we want them to think, but what would have made more sense to them as he's discussing these things about what would be happening in the future? And for me, it's been such a great encouragement to my heart to understand that as Christians living in difficult days, 
And let me be clear this morning. We, we live in challenging days as Christians. There's difficulty around us. We, we are not in a Christian nation anymore. We're in a nation that despises Christianity from even from the highest points of, of political power. But we're nowhere near what Christians have suffered in the past. And nowhere near that. Oftentimes we can tend to, 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 uh, to grieve about how things are and think that it's the worst it's ever been, but it's been far worse for the church of Jesus Christ in this world. But there's this encouraging hope that even in the midst of those dark days that the church suffered under Nero, in the dark days that the church has suffered in times in the past, God has always been faithful and carried them through. That Satan's attempt to wear down the church of God has never prevailed and will never prevail because he does not have the ultimate power and authority. Only Jesus does because he rules and he reigns. Daniel here closes this chapter. He says, at this point, the revelation ended. And he says, as for me, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Daniel was alarmed because he saw what was going to happen. He, and he really didn't understand how to process it all. Now, that last phrase there, I kept the matter to myself, does not mean that he kept it secret. But what it's talking about here is that he, he hid it away in his heart in ultimate desire that he would be able then to relay it to the church. We, we kind of translate, it's, a, it's an unusual translation, but the original language speaks to the idea of like, I'm keeping this matter in my heart so that I don't forget it, so that I can make sure that I can tell others about it. This is what Daniel intended to do. He intended to write this down because he understood this was not just a message for himself, but this was a message for the entire nation of Israel to encourage them to see that God was going to be faithful to his word. He was going to send the Messiah. But in the midst of that, when the Messiah did come, there was going to be this great period of tribulation that they were going to have to face. There's going to be this great season of difficulty that they were going to have to walk through. But in the midst of that difficulty, don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't think that God's abandoned you because ultimately he is the one who's going to conquer. He is the one who is going to rule. I want to read a quote here from Matthew Henry that I think speaks very clearly to this. This is from his commentary on these last verses here of, of Daniel chapter 7. And he says, It likewise promises that the gospel kingdom shall be set up, a kingdom of light, holiness, and love, a kingdom of grace, the privileges and comforts of which now under the heavens shall be the earnest and first fruits of the kingdom and glory in the heavens. When the empire, speaking of the Roman Empire, he says, became Christian and princes used their power for the defense and advancements of Christianity, then the saints possessed the kingdom. The saints rule by the spirits ruling in them. And this is the victory overcoming the world, even their faith, and by making the kingdoms of this world to become Christ's kingdoms. This is us. This is what he has called us to do. If you remember I, when we quoted from Matthew Henry back when we were looking at Matthew chapter 28, Matthew Henry speaks of that there, that it is our purpose that Christ is ruling and reigning. And it is our purpose through the proclamation of the gospel to take Christ's kingdom into the world and to make the world Christ's kingdom through his power, through his authority and through his command. As we close this morning, I want to remind you of just a few couple of short things that I think encapsulate the entirety of this chapter. Number one, we need to recognize that there is evil in the world, right? If, if God is ruling and reigning, we need to understand that there is evil in this world and that Satan is always going to be fighting against the church. We should not be surprised when we see it happen. 
and we should not be taken off guard when we see it occur. Number two, we need to understand that Christ's kingdom is sometimes a kingdom of suffering for us. That God sometimes allows us to walk through difficulty for his good, for our good and for his glory. So we can't be thrown off balance by that either. Even in the greatest nations in the world and the battles uh, throughout history, there have been times when the greatest empires were fighting in battle. And you know what happens? They lose people. There were people who died in the midst of battle. There were people who suffered in the midst of that battle. That's what it means to fight. It's what it means to war. So there's suffering in this life. And we need to understand that so that we're prepared for it to endure it. But thirdly, we need to have a right view of history. When we look back and we see nations rise and fall, if you were to sit down in the average history class at a secular university somewhere, they're going to tell you that one nation fell and one nation rose because of the great military might, strength and power, ability, or the available resources that they had. Any great battle in history, they will say, oh, it's because this, you know, this military force had greater weapons. These had greater men. They had more horses over here, more guns over here, water for the food and troops. These guys didn't have any water or strength. But you know who ultimately was in control? God. It was God who causes and still causes nations to rise and nations to fall. So we have to have a right view of history and understand who is ultimately in power and control when we look at the newspaper every day. When we read the headlines, it's God who is in control. And then finally, we need to have our hope in the right place. We're not hoping in our own strength and our own ability. We're just hoping in the power of Christ's kingdom and the one who rules and reigns. That's where our hope is. We need to wake up every morning just confident in the fact that we have a king who's sitting on the throne and nothing happens outside of his power. He is the one who rules and reigns. Let's close this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this book. And Lord, I thank you in my own heart uh, for the encouragement um, that this study has given to me. And Lord, although there are times, especially in, in, in books as Daniel, where uh, the, the language of the prophetic um, that Daniel was, was seeing or was speaking, things that yet had not come to pass in his day, and he's seeing these things through images and types and shadows uh, and visions. Uh, oftentimes, Father, that we can get overwhelmed uh, by the complexity of it, uh, by the curiosity of it. And we are attempting, Lord, to do our very best to interpret these things. Uh, Lord, not just in, in, in guesstimation, but through uh, the perspective of what has happened. How did these things transpire in history and how can we see these things tied in together? But Lord, we understand that some of these things are given in such a way that it was purposeful, that we can't really understand every single minute detail. Uh, but Lord, thank you that broadly we see that great hope and strength that you have put your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in this place of power and authority, uh, that he is making the nations its footstool, that he is doing his work of the kingdom on the earth. And Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us to be your servants in this kingdom, uh, to be your ambassadors, to go to all the world and declare the gospel to every nation, to every creature, that Jesus is Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would help us in those times uh, Lord, as we walk through seasons of joy and through seasons of difficulty, seasons of celebration and, so, and seasons of trial, Lord, that we would not be discouraged by the moment, but Father, we would be encouraged uh, by the end result, that we know that ultimately in the end, 
that Jesus will receive unto himself all those you, who you have given to him. That there will come a day when every person who you foreordained from the beginning of the world will come to Christ. And that the ultimate victory will be accomplished. That you will receive all of those people unto yourself. Not one will be lost. Not one will fall by the wayside. But all of those who you've given to your son, he will receive unto himself. Father, guide our hearts as we come to the table together. Lord, may we um, just anticipate this moment uh, as you do your work and ministry in our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.